I am so grateful that we get to be here a part of this week to hear what God is doing through Tactica. I want you to know that. This, what you guys are doing is uh, just so encouraging as a brother in Christ to hear what God is doing through you and the sacrifices you're making to make disciples, to live with these people, love them, reach them is so encouraging. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I, yeah, amen to that. I don't even need this table, so I'm just going to stay away from that table. Um, I am going to finish uh, what we started this morning, and uh, I want to look back uh, just for our evening time. You know, it's so great that we get to come together and think again about God's Word and uh, think again about Jesus' sermon and what He told us. And I think I'm going to pray first. Uh, I know we've, we've prayed a few times tonight. I'd love to pray with you. And uh, would you pray along with me that God would just speak to our hearts? I think a bun- if a bunch of his children were genuinely asking him, speak to our hearts, draw us close to you, uh, you know him, wouldn't he do that? Wouldn't he just love to do that? And so uh, would you join me in prayer? Uh, would you join me in prayer? Father, we love you because you first loved us. You, um, you sought us out, just like what Tactica is doing because of who you are and what you've done uh, for those believers, uh, we want to do, and so we're grateful that you did this for us. You, you humbled yourself, you took the form of a servant, you even uh, submitted yourself to, to death so that we could be with you and we could be a part of your family. You're so good to us. There's no way for us to ever be done thanking you. We're so glad that you've united us together. I'm grateful for what you're doing uh, through uh, the Tactica ministry, through these believers that love you and want to make disciples. Would you be with them, support them, encourage them as, uh, as they're on your mission? They're doing that because of what you've done for them. So we pray that you would Uh, Use us all to encourage one another, to build one another up. I pray that you would gift me in this hour with the gift of teaching. For your name's sake, would you help me to clearly share your word uh, so that your body, your people, would be built up in the truth. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, this morning, we read from Matthew chapter 7. Maybe some of you weren't here this morning, uh, and we read Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 2, and I may be doing this wrong. I bet I have to turn it on. And that's all it took. Yeah, so uh, maybe I do need to stand to the side. Um, so we looked at the first point of Jesus' sermon about judging, that we shouldn't judge one another. Uh, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure uh, you use. And we saw that uh, part of Jesus' first point, if you go back to Luke's parallel passage of this sermon, uh, you see that we should see the faults of others with compassion. That when we see other people's brokenness and faults and specks in their eyes, uh, we, should, we should look at those things with a compassionate heart that's full of a desire to be forgiving, 
to forgive those faults, to overlook them, to not let it be a barrier between us and them. And uh, you know what's really funny? This was not planned. Maybe God, I mean, obviously God plans it all. My wife had something in her eye tonight at dinner and could not figure out what it was. And she's like, do you, she's like crying out of one eye. She's like, do you see this thing in my eye? I'm like, no, I see the speck in your eye. (laughs) Clearly, I can, no one in the world sees it better than me right now. Uh, And she really had a, a piece of dust in her eye and she had to go to the bathroom to get it out. And I thought, maybe that was the Holy Spirit or a demon, I don't know. But something... It was so ironic that tonight as I speak on this, that happened. Um, and, and we'll get to the whole spec thing. But God, Jesus' first point, see the faults of others with compassion. How do you view the faults uh, of other people? And so be fair in your judgments because that's how you will be judged. And, and then Jesus starts really stepping on their toes. Jesus is walking slightly into this, and now he's starting to step on their toes. Don't, he, he moves from do not judge, uh, and he gets closer to home, and, uh, which is in verse 3. So he says in verse 3, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? So he gives an example that for their day, you know, there was no optometry really, but in their day with their work, you could easily get dirt and dust and stuff in your eye. And if you got it in your eye and someone else were to look at you, they'd be able to see that. But there's a caveat with this, with this passage that maybe a lot of Christians don't know, um, which we'll get to. Uh, he says, why do you look at the splinter or the speck, your version may say, in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye. And, and his, his point there is that you should see your faults with conviction. You should see the faults of others with compassion, and you should see your faults with conviction. Uh, you should notice what you're doing and not just look at someone else and think they're worse. And, and you guys know what this is like. It's easier to, to see the faults in other people. I'll give you an example, example that happened this past week. Uh, we're driving to Michigan from Kansas, and uh, it's not a very short drive. And so there's a lot of time for, for splinters to be seen uh, in my family. Uh, we're in a van. There's seven people in this one van, and, and we're pretty close to each other. And so we're driving, and uh, I start getting irritated uh, at the kids because I'm thinking, you know, they're not paying attention. And, and I look at Courtney and she's not, she's not fixing it. She's not immediately getting them to quiet down. And I'm like, I'm driving here. I've, I'm doing my job. I'm a guess where we're going. And your job is to get these kids to be perfect. I, I'm, what's the problem here? This is like, we're partners. This is equal pay here. And so uh, I'm getting a little irritated because it's like, what could you be doing that's more important than making sure I'm not bothered? I don't understand what, what that is. Uh, and so, so we're driving, and, uh, and I started getting irritated. Well, eventually we get to the gas station, and I pump the gas. I'm on the gas side, and I get out, and I'm pumping the gas, and I get done, and uh, she's got all the kids, and I walk in, and I go straight to the bathroom, and some of the kids are waiting out there, and I realize... She just took five kids into a gas station 
made sure that they didn't burn it down or like drink out of the toilet and do all that stuff that our kids seem to want to do. Um, she got them all ready and got them totally fixed up. And she, she never got to do what she needed to do in this gas station. And I was ready to go. And I realized, you know, I think I was frustrated with her and I'm doing the same thing. All I'm thinking about is what I need to do. And um, that's one minor example. I'm sure I'm worse than that in real life. But uh, it's easy to notice the fault in someone else uh, and before you notice your own. It's harder to notice your own fault. And when Jesus is preaching here, he's saying, listen, you need to see your faults with real conviction. You, you need to look at the, the, the beam in your own eye, the faults in your own eye, uh, before you see uh, their faults. And when he uses the, the splinter and beam of wood, uh, have you ever heard this, this, people say things like this, you know, the splinter in their eye is really small right? And the beam of your eye is really big. And so the impression that we get from 21st century is, listen, their faults are tiny and you've got big faults, don't you? And then the church is supposed to say, amen, I'm worse than everyone else. But in a room this big, if everybody was worse than anybody else, nobody would be not as worse as the other person, which logically doesn't make sense. Uh, that's not what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying you have worse problems than your neighbor, uh, because that's not always true. There, is, there are many times where your faults aren't necessarily as big and as bad as your neighbor. Sometimes you have faults that aren't as bad as as big as theirs. Sometimes people are in a real mess. They have real brokenness, and it's not for you to pretend that, oh, I'm just worse than them. I'm just so worse than them. That's false pride. Uh, you, you may not be in a worse situation than them. They didn't, he wasn't speaking about having something literally in your eye. 2,000 years ago, he meant if you had dust in your eye. So here's the point. Here's, here's what he means. If you're looking at someone else and they've got a little splinter in their eye and you can see it, if you like look to your neighbor and you saw something in their eye, it's tiny, right? If you had something in your eye, would it look tiny to you? No, I'll give you an example, an illustration, just to simplify it. How big is my finger to you? Is it small or huge? All right, small. How big is it to me right now because it's this close to my eye? It's covering like, I don't know, 15, 20 people. But to you, my finger's small. When he uses splinter and beam of wood or wood or plank, uh, some people say like the plank that's like a, an anchor, like part of a roof, keeping the roof up. The idea is it's made out of wood. It's made out of the same stuff. It's both of them are a splinter. What Jesus is saying is the splinter in your eye should look like a log. It should look like a beam. It should be huge because if you had something in your eye, have you ever looked at something and you like noticed something in your eye and it, it was covering like a third of your vision? That's the point. It's still, it's a speck in each other's eye. You're not supposed to look at yourself and say, pretend, oh, I'm so much worse than them. You're not worse than them. You're just as bad as they are. You've got a speck in your eye. They've got a speck in their eye. When you look at their speck, their speck is small. When you look through your eye and see your speck, it ought to be big because it's blocking your vision. So Jesus is making the point. When you look at other people and you don't notice your own, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's you being hypocritical. It's you not realizing, hey, you've got a speck in your eye. 
And how are you overlooking it? It's right there. How are you missing it is his point. So we should see our own faults with conviction. And then he continues, which kind of adds to the point. Or how can you say, in verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. The reason why you're a hypocrite is you ought to notice your wrongs first. Now, have you ever been with somebody that thought they had done no wrong and the way that they treated other people thinking they're perfect? Or have you ever been around someone that, that acted like they were better than everyone else? How is it around that person? How is it when you're around someone that thinks, I'm better than these other people? It's, it's, it feels really gross. It, it feels really gross because it's, it's hypocritical. You're around someone that doesn't notice uh, their own stink. I don't know. This is an old-timey phrase. My parents used to say this. Um, oh, you just think your poop don't stink. Now, my, my parents didn't say poop, but, uh, but they were also, they, they weren't raised in church either. Um, but they said that to us as kids, like as little kids, like five years old maybe. Uh, don't act like your poop doesn't stink. Uh, when you act that way, it's obviously and overtly hypocritical. And it's, it, it feels badly because it's wrong, it's unjust. And so see your own faults with conviction. He says, hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, no one has ever had a beam of wood in their eye. You can't have a beam of wood stuck in your eye. He's using this metaphor to say, it's obvious to you, easiest to you, clearest to you. Take care of your stuff. Own your faults. See them. Take care of them. Be honest. Be genuine. Be humble. Be repentant about your own faults. And when you take care of your own faults first, then you will be ready to look at someone else with, the very first point, with compassion. You'll be able to look at someone else and what they've done in a whole new light because you are a sinner too. You realize I'm guilty. I've done the same thing. I actually spoke with someone today uh, and he kept using the phrase, I'm the first one to look in the mirror. You want to own your wrongs and your defects first, uh, which is his third point. We, we ought to address our own faults first. So you see the faults of others with compassion. You see your own faults with conviction. I'm wrong too. And then you address your own faults first. Address them, be honest about it, repent, um, address your own faults first. In Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 41, uh, this is the parallel passage. Uh, if you remember in Luke chapter 6, it's, he's preaching a similar sermon on the same topic, but notice what Jesus adds when he preaches this at, to another crowd. He says in, uh, in verse 39, Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind guide, bl sorry, won't they both fall into a pit? If you had two people that couldn't see, you wouldn't have one of them lead the other one. That would make no sense. They would both fall in the pit. The issue is they cannot see. And so would you have that? And they'd, the answer would be obviously no. A blind person can't lead another blind person. You need someone that can see to lead someone who's blind. 
Won't they both fall into the pit? The answer is yes. And then he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, is he changing the subject here or is he trying to deepen the matter? He's saying you don't have a blind person leading the blind, and so you need someone that has learned how to deal with that fault in order to teach someone else to deal with that fault. And so he gives this illustration that they would be familiar with. Uh, A teacher, uh, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You're going to be like the person who's trying to help you and train you and teach you. And then he continues his sermon. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? You cannot help someone else with their faults if you haven't dealt with your own. There's a problem when we judge, and part of that problem of condemning is not owning our own faults. We see their splinter, but we don't notice ours. And if you are going to be a disciple maker, which is Jesus' sermon throughout his life, or throughout his three-year ministry, if you are now going to pass this on to others, you have to be honest about your own faults. Um, This became the clearest to me in parenting. Um, I'll tell something embarrassing and almost incriminating probably, but uh, with our first son, uh, I was a brand new father. I didn't know how to be a good father. My dad wasn't a good father. My dad wasn't around. I was abused in the different homes that we lived in. I moved out of my house when I was 14 to live with a friend and, and her single mom. And uh, I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to parent. And so when we had our first child, without thinking about it, I became my dad. I became my upset, angry, mean, marine father. And I just wanted to discipline uh, in a particular way. I wanted to spank them and say, this is how you act, this is what you ought to do, and I wanted to be very strict because that's how my dad was with me. And I didn't have another person teaching me that this is not the best way to deal with your kids. Uh, you cannot treat your kids like it's boot camp. Your kids need to process and grow and develop. They're not at the same stage that you are. No one taught me that. So I was very strict with our firstborn son. I was very strict with him. I, I was, in my opinion, I was harsh with him. I, I would not let him falter. If he made a mistake, I would mention it. I would, you know, bring attention to it. I wanted him to obey. I wanted him to obey to the fullest. I wanted him to treat me, not really because it was about me, but I thought the right way was for him to be just a great kid. And when it came to the New Testament, when it talked about elders, it said you ought to be able to lead your family well, and your kids ought to be faithful. They ought to be obedient. If your kids aren't listening to you, how can you lead the church if you can't even lead your own family? And so I was very convicted by this and challenged by this, and I wanted my son to be pristine and great, and I was really harsh on him. It, w- it took years for me to realize I was too harsh with him. I was way too hard on him. I wanted him to be perfect, and that was not fair to him. I, I was I was difficult with him. It wasn't until I realized that's not how God is with me. God does not treat me that way. He doesn't discipline me and and punish me and hold me to the letter every single time I falter. Why would I be that way with my son? That's not how my heavenly father is with me. Uh, And and I, I realized 
that if I want to train my son, I have to be different. And I was just like my teacher, my father. I disciplined the same way my father disciplined, and it took me having my first son to realize that's not the, that's not the right way. That's not a healthy way. And uh, I had to be retrained. And so when Jesus is speaking about, listen, no disciple is greater than his teacher, he means what you practice and what you do is going to be what the person next to you and the people around you, that is what they are going to follow. That's what they're going to see, and that's what they're going to mimic. And so when he speaks about judging and not being hypocritical, he brings this in to say, because you are an example. You are the salt and the light. You are going to be training up disciples, whether you're being intentional about it or not. You are going to be training others. And so you don't want to be judging in that way because that's, that's hypocritical. And so... We need to see other people's problems with compassion. We need to address ours first. We need to notice our own faults, and that will help us to be gracious and gentle with others, like our children. We should be patient and gracious with our children um, because we also, even as adults, we, we do the same thing. You know, I, I remember, now I remember why I brought this up, not just to tell you how bad of a parent I've been. Um, <laughs> I remember spanking my son Samuel and saying, you do not hit your brother while I was hitting him. And it didn't register in my mind at the time what I was doing and what I was saying and the impact it was making. I did not realize what I was doing because no one taught me differently. That's the way I was shown. And, um, and it matters. It matters how we're shown. We, we need to be treating others the way that we want to be treated in that way. So, so Jesus says, you need to notice your own faults first. God is gracious with you. Be gracious with others. If once you deal with your own, you will be able to deal with the faults of others, even the faults of your kids, even the weaknesses of your kids. If you notice that you have faults and you are guilty and you are impatient and sometimes you yell, you can't be upset with them when they yell when you're giving them the example of yelling when you get impatient. Uh, when you get impatient and you yell, you need to be honest with them and say, I've been impatient. This is, I'm sorry. I've been impatient. It's not right for me to yell like this just because I'm upset. This is not the right way to handle this. You need to give an example of how they ought to be and not be so hard on them realizing you are the ones showing them the very bad habits that they're doing. It's easy to see it in them. We notice immediately in our kids when they're being bad, but yet when we're being the same kind of bad, we don't notice. And so that's that was not planned, but maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I know a lot of you are parents, um, and maybe that's what God wants to tell you. With your children, noticing their faults, you should recognize your own faults. So address the faults, address your own faults first. And then his last point, point number four, address the faults of others carefully. So you want to address our own faults first, and we want to address the faults of others carefully. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, he says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Now, how many of you know that other people don't like it when you're poking around their eye? Anybody like to get poked around? Anybody want someone poking around your eye? No one likes it. 
And uh, if you study this passage, you know, there's some people, there's even, there's some even uh, publishers that publish the Bible and they separate verse 6, uh, which really makes no sense on its own. Uh, they separate verse 6 from the, judge, the judging passage. Jesus is preaching about judging. Don't judge one another. First, notice your own faults. Then what will happen? If you take care of your own faults first, then you will be able to do what? You'll be able to help your brother with the splinter in their eye. The whole purpose of what Jesus is saying is, if you really want to help others with their faults, and you want to be on mission, and you want to be biblical, and you want to be a disciple maker, and you want to be a good parent, and you want to help others because everybody has weaknesses and faults, if you want to address their faults, uh, be careful. Because there are some people, they don't want you to notice the speck in their eye. And they don't want you poking around their eye, and they don't want you talking about their faults. And so he says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Now, if you know, you know, this culture back then, who was known as the dogs? The Gentiles, non-Jews were known as dogs to some of them, not all of them, but they were known as dogs. They were the non-Jews. They were the non-converts. They were converts. They were not God's people. And so in their vernacular, their language, dogs were another way of speaking of non-Jews. And so Jesus uses a modern-day idiom for them. This is the way that they spoke. He says, don't give what is holy to dogs, which is a documented phrase of, you don't give Jewish holy things to unholy Gentiles because they have nothing to do with it. They won't be able to do anything with it. They can't take it in the temple. They can't make sacrifices. They can't obey the law. They're not wanting to obey the law. You don't give that to them. So he says, don't give to dog what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Don't give what is precious and treasures to pigs. If you were to give jewelry to a pig, what would a pig do with it? It's going to do one of two things. It's going to eat it and then poop it out. Good luck fishing that out. Or it's going to trample all over it. A pig has nothing to do with treasure. And so Jesus is saying, some people aren't going to want you to help them fix the speck in their own eye. Some people are not going to want you to address their faults. So before you go, even after you address your own faults and you, you take the beam out of your own eye, you will be capable of helping others with their faults. But you need to address them carefully. And you address them differently. This is where Jesus begins speaking of Christians and non-Christians differently. You do not address the faults of believers in the same way you address the faults of non-believers. I'll give you an example thinking of Tactica. When they are loving these people and not judging them as they shared, they don't even need to judge them. They don't need to address their sin because they're there to share Christ with them. They're there to win them to Christ. They have an open door through a ministry, a program to help them, and then they have a way in which to witness to them. But if they were to look at these non-believers and say, how do you not follow the law of God? The answer would actually turn around back in them because they're not under the law. They don't follow him. They don't claim that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not their master. Jesus is not their king. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul had to write to the church at Corinth, if you remember, where he says, now listen, 
I'm not saying that you don't associate with the, with the world. In that case, you would have to go out of the world. You can't do that. I'm not saying for you to judge those outside of the church because you can't do that. That's impossible. You would have to leave the earth. I'm talking about believers. You need to be discerning and convicting and challenging believers within the church. So in the New Testament, you have this dichotomy where Jesus says, as Christians, as a church family, as people belonging to Christ, we hold each other accountable in ways that are not the same with people outside of Christ. Uh, another example would be when Paul, same church, the church at Corinth, when he writes them, he says, uh, don't even eat a meal with such a person who claims to be a believer, but openly, outrightly lives against God's law and is not obedient to the apostles' teaching or what we consider the New Testament. Don't even eat a meal with such a person. However, with people that don't claim to be Christians, you can go and eat a thousand meals with them and befriend them and care about them and be with them. Why would the New Testament encourage us not to even eat a meal with somebody, but you can do whatever you want with somebody else? Why? Because the accountability within the church and how you judge and discern the fruits of others is different when someone calls themselves a believer. Now, this is a lesson that is important for the church of today, especially in America. We need to really grap grapple with this. We need to grab onto this truth. We ought to care about how we live. Why? Because we are the salt and we are the light. We ought to be encouraging one another. What, what does Matthew 18 say? If your brother sins against you, go to him in private. Address him. He's wronged you. How do you look at the wrongs of others? How do you deal? How do you address with them? You address them carefully. You do it privately. You do it lovingly. You don't do it judgmentally in the sense of I'm better than you. But you need to address other believers that are out openly, publicly living against God's rule. That is actually a command in the Bible. We are supposed to notice each other's fruit. How are we living? And encourage one another and sometimes to challenge one another. But when it comes to people that are not believers, Jesus never does it. He never tells the church to do it. Paul tells the church, you don't have to do it with them. Your job isn't to judge non-believers. They're already judged. They're already under condemnation, according to John chapter 3. They're already living under the condemnation. Your job isn't to go and inspect their lives and say, this is right, this is wrong, you need to change this, you need to do that. That's not your job in the non-believer's life. In the non-believer's life, we're called to love them, care about them, and share the good news with them. We need to go to them and show them this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So when Jesus brings this dogs and pigs inside, or in, in the sermon, he's saying, now listen, don't, don't give these pearls and these truths of these wrongs, don't give them to dogs and pigs because they're going to turn around and they're going to attack you. I can tell the church, we need, we need to stand up for what the Bible says about marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And you should be convicted and you should be praying and you should be looking at the scripture and saying, is this what God says? Is this according to God's law? And I can stand here and be confident. God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. And this is the way it needs to be. But with, with non-believers, it's not that I don't stand for that truth, 
But I don't go to non-believers and say, how come you guys are living together? This is horrible. I can't believe you're doing this. This is, this is so wrong in your life. You obviously know that you should be living differently. That's not how I address the problem with non-believers because they're going to turn to me and say, why would I follow your rules? I don't see Jesus as Lord and Master. That's not what I follow. And they're going to turn and attack me. I can tell you marriage is between a man and a woman. If I went to an LGBTQ convention and I stood on stage and says, marriage is between one man and one woman, what are they going to do? They're going to, I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to do Matthew 7, 6. Uh, they will trample what I say, the truth, under their feet. They will turn and they will tear me to pieces. That's exactly what they're going to do. And so Jesus is telling them, be careful when you address the issues, the defects, the faults of others. You have to address your own faults first before you can even help others, but know that you don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't spend your time trying to fix the behavior of non-believers. That's not what Christ did, and that's not going to help you because non-believers can be all great in behavior and still go to hell. They need to be won through the good news of Jesus Christ. They do need to be convicted by their sin, but they need to be one with the gospel. They don't care about whether marriage is between a man or a woman. That, that's not, that's not going to save them. That's not going to change them from being separated from God and then being with God. Do you know that you can live a moral life and you can live by a great code and you can be kind and nice and hospitable. You can treat your neighbors well. You can be good to your spouse. You can do all kinds of great things, so much so that if you were in some churches, they'd be like, you need to be a deacon. Uh, and you could, but that same person can be a non-believer. They could be non-Christian. And so Jesus is warning them, when you see the problems, the defects in others and they're non-believers, you need to be careful as you address them because you don't address them as a Christian going to another Christian. You need to address them as someone who is outside of the lordship of Jesus. You need to love them and help them. You need to be gracious with them, show them an example. But there's some believers, like if there was an elder in my church that was uh, flirting with a woman that wasn't his wife, I would go up to him immediately and confront him. And I would, no bones about it. I, and I would tell him, because of the Lord Jesus, you are making a huge mistake. This is wrong. And this, this is going to devastate your family. And if you claim Jesus is Lord, you need to act like Jesus is Lord. But to a non-believer, I, I would get to know this guy and say, he's got an issue. He's got a problem. He's got a temptation issue. He's, he's obviously, I feel like he's flirting. There was actually, uh, there was a family in our church. Uh, there was a couple families, and uh, a husband was hanging out with uh, another guy's wife, and they were standing together, and I just felt like they were too close. I just felt like they were like too buddy-buddy. They were, they were just too close. There's too much chemistry between them, and, uh, and I got nervous uh, because I'm the pastor of this church, and, and I can't, you know, I can't subjugate this to someone else. So I was really nervous. I was like, I got to say something. And this guy's bigger than me and probably would eat me for lunch. I'm like, I just don't want to tell this guy, you know. And I'm like thinking about it. I'm, I'm worried about it. By the end of that morning service, I found out that they were brother and sister. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, really, really dodged a bullet there. Uh, I, I thought I was going to end up in the hospital or prison. I didn't know. But I was ready to go to that guy and say, listen, man, this ain't right. Not just because he's a fellow human being, 
but because when he gave his life to Christ and he at least makes a profession of faith and he's in my church family, it's my obligation to love him enough and to say, dude, I'm not perfect, but this ain't right. And I need to go to him in private. If it were at a Walmart or if it was at a dinner or it was a work, a lot of you are in work organizations, you guys are in workplaces, you don't have every coworker is not a believer. You guys are on the front lines trying to witness to people that are not believers. You do not go to that believer and say, dude, man, uh, you, you've got an ultimatum with me. You, you, you better put this down or, or we, we are not right. You don't do that with them. You love them. You befriend them. You show them what it's like to live a godly life. But if they're a believer, you go to them and say, look, dude, this is, this is death or life. This is life or death. You're, you're, you're an example of Christ. Stop pretending you're a Christian if you're going to live that way and stop giving a bad name to it or start living up to the bar that Jesus has set. He's called us to something better. And what you're doing is worse. It's not as good as what he's called us to. So hopefully I've made it clear. I know a lot of people feel nervous about this, uh, but it's a teaching that needs to be more talked about in the church. You do not treat the faults of believers the same as you treat with the, the faults of non-believers. And uh, it's very relevant for today because a lot of you, your coworkers, your kids, your kids' friends, you're having to make a decision. How do I talk about these things? How do I respond to these things? If they claim to be Christians, you have to respond a lot more direct. You've got to respond with some confidence. You've got to bring Christ and his lordship into that conversation. If they're non-believers, you don't. You don't have to do that because Jesus is not their Lord. And so you speak to them and you deal with them differently. And uh, as a church, as, as Jesus' body, we've got to become better at that. And it only happens through practice. It only happens through walking through it and living through it. Am I noticing the speck in my own eye? Um, I'll give this last example uh, I don't know what time it is. Uh, it's time. I'll give this last example. Uh, I had a, somebody mention this to me. The church right now is, is really becoming more vocal about LGBTQ issues, um, about the whole gender and sexuality and, and all this stuff. We're, we're just becoming more vocal. Why? Is that the most important subject in the Bible? No. Uh, but the world has made it. The agenda has made it. And so we have to address it. We've got to address the times. We've got to deal with, with what the enemy is preaching Monday through Sunday out in the world. We've, we've got to be willing to address that. Um, and this person said, you know, you, you, you talk so much about uh, LGBTQ, but adultery and sexual immorality has the same statistics within the church as it does out. You guys are hypocrites. And uh, you know what? He's right. He's right. The church in America today uh, we have downplayed adultery, we have downplayed immorality, we've downplayed pornography, and I know it's a real issue. I know it's a real issue with a lot of people in this room. But if you address your own faults first and you don't pretend like you're better than, and you're open about, man, I struggle with this, then it's not hypocritical to say, I struggle too, this isn't the best, let me tell you how God is winning victories in my life then it's not hypocritical. That's why Jesus says, hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye. You have to address your issues, your faults first before you can address the issues of others. And when you do, you will no longer be a hypocrite. You'll be able to see them with compassion, to love them gracefully, 
and realize you don't treat non-believing, non-confessing people the same way as you treat the faults of those who profess Jesus as Christ. And uh, that will divide some people. And there's some of you that would be so tempted that you never, ever, ever want to confront someone about their sin. And uh, I'll just tell you, according to Jesus' way, uh, you'll never make disciples well that way. It will be like the blind leading the blind. And that's not what Jesus designed for the church. We have to be honest about our stuff. We've got to be willing to address the faults of others, and we need to do it carefully because that's Jesus' way. That was part of Jesus' sermon. Jesus was multifaceted. He wasn't just, oh, everyone's great. He turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He dealt with issues like, like a godly man, the kind of way that he wants us to deal with issues. And um, the church is not going to thrive in disciple-making if we ignore sins and we don't address them and we pretend like if we just listen to music and everybody's having a good time, then it'll all work out because everybody will like each other because sin will be creeping in underneath and it will be just as rampant as if everybody was openly sad. It's no different, the sin issue. And so, anyway, my time is up. I'm going to pray. I'm so glad I left you on that great note. I can tell by your faces. This is your favorite sermon. Uh, uh, I hope you're convicted, though, and I stand here not confident in my ideas. You study the Scripture and you ask yourself, if Jesus was soft with his disciples about their own issues and how he treated non-believers and how he wants us to be like him. We've got to be stronger about this, not judging, but being willing to confront and address in a healthy way, and it begins with addressing our own stuff first. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm so grateful to you, Jesus. You are the example. You are the hero you are Lord and Master and King, and um, you set the example. You showed us the way. Help us not to be judgmental, but help us uh, to address our faults. Help us to be honest about our own sins, our own defects, our own weaknesses, and help us to make disciples within our home and within our church family, within our community. Uh, give us discernment on how to treat our lost neighbor differently than our professing neighbor. Help us uh, to be your hands and feet. Help us to be strong in, in answering the call that you've put on our lives to make disciples, to be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. Help us to obey that. Help us to understand it clearly. Help us to follow it. We love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.